This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of Real Estate Is Your Business is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. My name is Brendan Wallace. I am the co-founder of Fifth Wall. And what I love about the real estate business is that I love thinking about how buildings and physical places condition and influence human activity. I mean, basically all human activity takes place in some kind of environment, and real estate is just the sum of all those environments. And I especially love how technology is changing those environments and making them more accessible, uh, more optimized to what people want, uh, healthier, um, and frankly, in some cases, cheaper. Um, so I just really love that nexus of real estate and technology and how it's changing the world around us. One of the biggest challenges for established real estate firms is keeping a pulse on the technology that will keep them competitive. In this conversation, you'll hear how bridges are being built between the past and the future of the real estate industry. From New York City, you're listening to Real Estate Is Your Business, powered by Preview, a smart online real estate brokerage providing expert advice without the high fees. With real estate tech entrepreneur Thomas Kutzman and business development expert Scott Pollock. Brennan, uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's really great to have you here with us. Thank you for having me. And uh, I just want to again get right into it. And you know, you've had an amazing career already with you know your angel investing in consumer brands such as Dollar Shave Club and Bonobos, uh, as well as an entrepreneur yourself. You know, successfully exiting uh, with the sale of uh, your company as an entrepreneur. How did you arrive at real estate technology? When did it become a focus for you uh, in your current chapter? So, real estate technology, which obviously is what I do now with Fifth Wall is kind of a marriage of the first half of my career and the second half. So I, I started my career right out of college. I worked in real estate banking. I worked in at Goldman Sachs. It was kind of in 04, 05, so during the boom time. Was it and, by choice, by the way, that you went into real estate banking, or was that just where you were placed in a analyst program or the like? I just kind of ended up there. I mean, I knew I loved real estate coming out of school. That was my passion. I actually wrote my senior thesis at Princeton on real estate. And a lot of people were going to banking at the time, and I just kind of ended up in banking. So I went from there to Blackstone, and I was in real estate private equity at Blackstone uh, from 2006 to 2008. That was a really cool time to be there. That was when they acquired equity office properties. They bought Hilton Hotels. And in 2007, the world ended. So yeah, they basically bought Hilton at the at the all time high at the top, yeah. and actually ended up making a great deal of it in spite of that. But um, I got to witness kind of the the boom cycle and the beginning of the bust. And I, it just so happens I had applied to business school in 2007. I got in. It seemed at the time like a great time to go to business school to kind of wait out what was happening in in the real estate world then. So I went to Stanford and, you know, just being in Stanford in Silicon Valley, I caught the tech bug. Um, everyone there seems to be starting a company or involved in venture capital or just kind of this broader entrepreneurship ecosystem. So in between my first and my second year of business school, I started my first company, which was a data and analytics business in the early days of Facebook on their platform. We basically delivered analytics to companies to help them target which were the right kinds of workers for whatever they're hiring for. There was this trove of data inside Facebook for a category of workers that wasn't on LinkedIn, mainly blue-collar, semi-skilled workers. They were actually very hard to recruit. And so we built a solution that helped those companies both recruit and better target the right kinds of employees. And it kind of ended up in a very Silicon Valley story, you know, prototypical Silicon Valley um, rise of a business. We raised about $35 million as students, uh, hired a team of engineers. They worked out of a garage, literally, 
Um, Does Stanford just have garages on campus so that everybody can have the I think the same garages garage story? Might, might have actually yeah. started quite a few companies. I don't know if the garage we we used That's started business. other companies. Yeah. Garages yeah. for rent to start at Stanford. It's called WeWork. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we started that. We raised uh, capital about thirty-five million over the course of two years. And then Workday, which is a big public enterprise SaaS company, came along and acquired us. Um, I'd also started another company where we saw Uber taking off in San Francisco. Me and my same co-founder built a very similar application and launched it in Latin America with another classmate. Um, And that became Cabify, which is now the largest ride-sharing service in Latin America. It's in about 15 countries across Latin America. It's very much like Uber, just down south. And so through those experiences, I had kind of been exposed to tech and entrepreneurship and venture capital. And I was thinking about what to do next with my career. I was doing at the time, as you mentioned, a lot of angel investing. I actually used AngelList very early on um, and built, I think, what is still a pretty large syndicate on AngelList. Which means that other people can kind of ride along your investments? Exactly. It's kind of like miniaturized VC. So effectively, you have a group of people, some of whom you know, some of whom you may not know, that are backing you kind of in the same way they would back a fund. The difference is it's smaller and it's discretionary. So uh, I was doing a lot of those. I think I did about 20 or 30 syndicates on AngelList. And through that experience, I started to crystallize a view of this convergence between real estate and tech. Around that time was when I met my co-founder, Brad, who had a pretty similar background to me as well. He was His experience also kind of married real estate and tech. So he was Harvard undergrad, UBS real estate banking, Tishman Spire real estate, Starwood real estate PE. And then he left Starwood in about 2011 when the housing market was obvious obviously near the bottom, and they built automatic valuation technology that enabled them to price homes that were being sold all across the country in auctions. So more so for people to go out and do a portfolio purchase of multiple homes. Exactly. Um, and you know these were homes that were in some stage of the foreclosure process or had already been foreclosed upon, and they were literally being auctioned off on like courthouse steps. And what they did is they built technology that let them value these homes you know, determine what they should bid on them. Blackstone ended up backing the company and giving them a billion dollars. And that became Invitation Homes. They ultimately acquired about 50,000 homes in 15 different markets all across the country. It's the largest single family rental platform. And I think what's interesting there is that's an example of how real estate and technology were converging, not just to create pure play tech, but they actually created a real estate business. Um, like ultimately, that is a real estate company. It's I think a twelve billion dollar company today, right. and it's a public company. It's now. a public company. I think it might even be a Fortune five hundred company now. Um, it IPO'd sometime last year. So we both had this hybrid experience, and we started looking at real estate technology. And it was odd; we couldn't actually find a venture fund focused on real estate technology. Yeah, it's usually like a just a carve out or what's one silo within a bigger, bigger yeah, VC. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of generalist funds that are looking at it. Um, but what's odd is that you actually have a lot of vertically focused funds in other categories. If you look at education tech, there's a lot of funds, even like virtual reality. And I mean, there's more funds focused on cannabis than there are real estate tech. Why do you think that was? So I think there's two reasons for it. One, I think, is sociological, which is there's just not a lot of people from the real estate industry that go into tech and entrepreneurship. I don't know why that is, but for some reason they just don't overlap. We haven't met a GP at a big generalist fund who has previously worked in the real estate industry yet. So it just seems to be a gap. There's some there's some lack of interaction between those two industries. I mean, is that because most general partners at other VC funds are probably former operators of other entrepreneurial ventures or came up in finance? I, I think there's probably a few reasons for it. I think real estate has been a late adopting industry. So there haven't really been a lot of real estate tech companies until recently. Um, and I think for some reason, they just, they just don't... Um, I think the tech industry hasn't really thought of real estate as 
a fertile ground for innovation for a very long period of time. Now I think that's changed. And now I think everyone's looking at the industry. But I guess to answer your question, I think the first part is there's just not a lot of people there. And Brad and I happen to have this hybrid experience. The second reason is more, I think, existential to why Fifth Wall exists, which is we saw that real estate tech has this weird risk profile, like by and large. It, it has generally low technical risk, the companies in it, meaning because the industry has been such a late adopting industry, what qualifies as innovation is oftentimes very simple technically. So a lot of the technologies we look at are pretty simple in, at a technical level. They literally take spreadsheets and put them in the cloud. Or it's they, more incremental than really like massive disruption. Exactly. Um, it's a service-based industry that you're building a very lightweight solution to do slightly better than what they're doing before. So what you don't face in real estate tech are the big, the big existential questions of does it work? Is it better than the status quo? Can you build it? Does it have positive ROI if adopted? For the most part, the answers to those questions are yes. But where all the risk hinges is around distribution and go-to-market. So if you can't, if you have a great technology and you, and you have, let's say, brokerage technology, and you fail to sell that to CBRE or Cushman, you're not going to be successful. Um, everything hinges on those two partnerships. Or if you have hospitality tech and you have a huge VC fund backing you with $100 million and the best product and the best engineering team. But Hilton, Hyatt, Marriott, Starwood don't adopt you, it's over. So actually a very small number of contracts completely dictated the outcomes. So we, saw, we thought that was interesting. We were like, huh, you have this huge industry early in the adoption of technology. And just to paint how, how big it is, by the way, I mean, real estate is 14% of the US economy. It's the largest asset class. It's the largest lending category. It's the largest store of consumer wealth. And it's actually produced a lot of huge outcomes. If you look at Priceline, Expedia, WeWork, Airbnb, Zillow, I mean, just those five companies are a quarter trillion dollars of value. So we're like, this is so odd. Like, wh why, why are there no funds? And I think it was because no one really built the approach that we took to venture. We said, well, what if we could raise capital from the largest buyers of real estate technology themselves. So the firms that are actually determining who wins and who loses. And then we'll be able to collaborate with them, either understand what they're going to do or influence what they're going to do, and then make better investments and really support our portfolio companies, help them get distribution. So that was really, I think, the nexus or the the genesis, really, of where Fifth Wall started. And in many ways, that idea of companies investing in technologies or, or startups that are relevant to them strategically, that's kind of a common thing in many other industries, right? Where you know, many companies have their uh, corporate development arms or strategic investments arms that are investing in startups that might be conducive to their own business. But is there something about real estate where that idea of a kind of venture arm of a company really hasn't uh, hadn't come about before? Well, it actually did exist, but I think at very small scale in real estate. There, there even before Fifth Wall existed, I think there was a and still is a cottage industry of large real estate corporates or real estate family offices that are kind of dabbling in tech investing because they obviously saw the opportunity where they could identify great technologies that could support their core business and drive operational efficiencies. Why don't they invest in them? I think what hadn't been done is no one had really institutionalized that and no one had seen that there's a way to do that on an independent basis. Because if you're looking at a, buying a building one day and looking at a cash flow negative, you know, hyper growth, early stage technology company the next day, it's very hard to keep those two things straight. It's tough to get a board to get really buy in on, on it, that. Exactly. And I think corporate venture also can get a bad name because, you know, there's this inherent conflict sometimes between your corporate strategic priorities and the needs of an early stage company. Um, and also, it's hard to create the right incentives in corporate venture capital. So a lot of times, the person leading your investment left, and the strategic partnership you had contemplated initially is unfulfilled, or the deal gets orphaned, and there's no one really responsible for it. So we aim to say, what if we could create an independent fund that's traditional as a venture capital fund, 10-year fund, totally independent of the corporates, 
but we'll just have a much more collaborative relationships with these corporates. So it kind of has the, the best of both worlds, the best of traditional generalist VC, except it's focused and has corporate partners, and it's kind of has the best of corporate VC, but without the drawbacks of it. So if a uh, an analogy to the recruiting world would be that many companies have done their own recruiting, they have their own talent teams in-house, HR, et cetera. Um, what you guys look to do is be the outsourced recruiter, if you will, but instead of hiring people, you're looking at opportunities for a company to invest to get the same kind of benefit. I think that's right. And I think there's, I mean, look, transformation of these large real estate corporates is not going to happen in a month or a year or maybe even a decade. It's going to take a long time. And so I think having someone that is on the side of the companies that can work really closely with these young developing portfolio companies to help them understand what these corporates want and what they want will evolve over time. So if you can play the translator between this universe of major real estate incumbents and this innovation economy, there's a lot of value in that. There's one other thing I would also add that's unique about this structure is we raised capital from a number of different real estate strategics across different real estate subsectors. So we kind of picked one subsector and tried to identify one large corporate. So in brokerage, we have CBRE. In industrial, we have Prologis. In multifamily, we have equity residential. In hotels, we have host hotels, about eight of these large corporates. Now, did you specifically reach out to those companies or was it a race to like, we want one partner in this industry and whoever comes in first? Or was it a longer sort of planned out discussion? It was, a, I'd say, somewhere in between the two. Um, we were fortunate in the in the sense that I think in every subsector, we were able to get either the biggest, um, and we kind of looked for this, we had, are the biggest or the most innovative. And we looked for that overlap of where could you find the largest brand that is the most distribution, but also is like fundamentally committed to technology and innovation. I mean, there's a lot of large corporates out there who pay lip service to technology and innovation and investing, but they're really not truly committed to it. What we asked of our corporates is we said, we want to take capital from you. We want to collaborate with you, but we're going to need you to hire dedicated teams internally to focus not only on the investments that we're making, but also driving adoption internally, navigating the bureaucracy, navigating the operational complexities and the speed bumps that you're going to hit around these partnerships we structure. So that was really important to us. So it's a heavy ask, as you can imagine, of all these corporates. Now, but now that it's evolved, their their investors, their strategic partners. How does the relationship work now post you know post investment? How do you, how does the, the dialogue between you and those strategic? Uh, how does that transpire over time? So I think it kind of starts. It's a little different than generalist VC in the sense that we take a very top down approach to venture investing. So a lot of where that starts is kind of need finding at these large corporates, understanding what are their pain points, what's not working today, what could be working better, where can we look to technology to solve that, and how. And whatever the particular need is, we can then look at the universe of potential companies that could meet that need or help solve it and invest in it. Sometimes it's as simple as we already know what the company is, and we're simply kind of helping drive adoption of a company that's already been selected and we're likely investing in that business as well. Sometimes it's a bit more speculative where it's too early for a partnership to happen, but we feel confident that partnership could happen if we just keep the large corporate and the company we're investing in close together. And just driving the constant interaction and collaboration between them, we think something good is going to come out of that. That's more influencing what these large corporates are going to do. So it kind of sits somewhere in between. Sometimes they're known partnerships. Sometimes we are influencing the formation of a partnership. Right. And it's almost like they're keeping a pulse on the change that's happening. So if they do need to make their own strategic acquisition or partnership to sort of get involved sooner, it's a nice conduit to do that. Yeah, it's a, it's a lens into this world that, frankly, they, they don't really have a great lens into right now. I mean, the I think the stat I've seen is that versus five years ago, there's seven times as many real estate technology startups. So the growth of this subsector of the technology industry has been dramatic. And it's just hard if you're a large corporate running a real estate business 
day to day to keep abreast of everything in the market. And so we provide that access for them. We provide that insight. In some ways, it's highly consultative, right? So sometimes these large corporates don't know what they want. Um, they're just beginning to think through what the problem even is or how they could look to solve it. And so being a part of you know, how their thinking is evolving is really important because then we know which companies to introduce to them and when. There's another thing that's interesting, which is we've seen these large real estate corporates actually collaborate with each other. Because while some companies we invest in are idiosyncratic to a particular subsector, so you know this company does hospitality tech or this company does brokerage tech, there are other categories where everyone in the real estate industry is struggling with the same problem. So say energy efficiency. Everyone wants to use less energy in their buildings. I mean, in the US energy industry, I think 30% of the US energy industry is real estate almost 60% of the US electricity industry is real estate. So cost of electricity and energy costs are a huge focus for every single real estate investor. So we've actually seen opportunities where these large corporates can collaborate with each other and where the same company that we might invest in can be adopted by multiple corporate anchor LPs of ours across different subsectors of the industry. And they're sharing insights and feedback and helping these companies go deeper in these partnerships. So by these by having these strategic partnerships, you almost create instant scale for those you know, younger companies that you do invest in. Or yeah, it's, stage. It's, it's, it's distribution for them. Um, you know, for the same reason that Fifth Wall exists, there's not a lot of connectivity between the traditional venture capital world and the real estate industry. So being able to go to an early stage company that, let's say, is selling into the home building industry and say that, in three days, we can make introductions to the 10 largest home builders at scale, and you're gonna be talking to the right decision makers to adopt your technology is quite powerful. And so oftentimes what we do is we'll partner with a generalist fund in the deals we do, where you know, we kind of split the deal or there's some partnership in place, and we really focus principally on the go-to-market and distribution. And it's not just our anchor LPs. It starts with our anchor LPs, but now we have relationships kind of in each vertical that are pretty deep. We can go, you know, 10, 20, 30 firms deep in every subsector and provide all those introductions. Real estate is your business is presented by Preview. Find out how smart home buyers get more with Preview by visiting previewapp.com backslash buyer. That's P-R-E-V-U-A-P-P dot com backslash buyer. Keep up with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Real Estate Biz Show and with hashtag Mouth Media. Plus, check out all of the Mouth Media Network shows at mouthmedianetwork.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Culturally, in terms of the big corporates, you know, the real estate industry has often been considered one that's maybe a little slower to adopt technology and really change. Have you found that what you guys are able to do at Fifth Wall is, is change that culture from the outside in? Or are you finding it's the other way around, that a lot of these big companies actually want to embrace technologies and work with other startups, et cetera, and you're providing them with a vehicle to do so more easily? I, th I think it's a little bit of both. Um... Realist, large real estate firms are changing right now. Um, I mean, firms that never had chief information officers are hiring chief information officers right now. Um, large real estate corporates now have growing budgets for technology. So organically, even independent of Fifth Wall, the demand for and interest in real estate technology is just growing. I think Fifth Wall just adds fuel to that fire, or really, I'd say almost adds precision to that drive because these large real estate corporates know their pain points and know their needs, but they oftentimes don't know the solutions. And so what we're really doing is translating that need or that problem into a specific solution. And ideally that solution is a company that we invest in. And alongside that investment, we structure a broad multifaceted corporate partnership that you know creates a win-win for everyone really a win-win-win, because it's a win for the corporate. They get a great technology that helps them do their business better. 
it's a win for the portfolio company because they're growing their business. And it's a win for Fifth Wall because we made a great investment. That's the kind of ideal scenario we're trying to push for. But I think it's na- it's naturally changing. And there is um, it's a lot of, there's a gap. Some Some large corporates are more focused on technology. Some still, I'd say, are taking the put your head in the sand approach. But we're seeing even that change a little bit now. So you're clearly taking a very unique approach versus you know classic VC and you know other sort of real estate tech focused investors. How are you looking at the industry? Which sectors are you most focused on? Is it commercial? Is it residential? Um, I mean, we we look at everything. So there's nothing I would say that we don't look at. We, what we don't do is we don't invest in a company where we don't think we have an edge. An edge either being an insight um, that no one else has vis-a-vis our corporate partners or an edge in terms of our ability to influence the outcome, to really accelerate growth for the company. So I think we've probably focused a lot on the categories that are relevant for anchors. So commercial has been a large part of our business. Um, I'd say we focused a little less on brokerage, real estate brokerage technology, especially on the residential side. Um, but I think, you know, as we grow fifth wall, we might look to add other corporate partners that fill in gaps that today we can't fill for an early stage company. Like what would be an example of some of those, you know, more residential focused partnerships you would consider? Um, so there's a lot of technologies out there that are building solutions to either disintermediate residential brokers or enable residential brokers or just change some aspect of the home buying process from identification of the home to discovery of the home to actually closing the home transaction. Because we don't work with a lot of residential brokerages, that's not a space we've focused really deeply on. But I think we're going to probably work with more brokerages in the future where we're going to be able to help support those kinds of businesses. I'd contrast that to something in, say, energy efficiency, where currently we're making a number of bets in that space. And because so many large real estate corporates are focused on that, we're immediately able to add value, to step in, grow their business, grow revenue, structure partnerships, and just accelerate an early stage company. Do you think the corporates are more focused on that from a pure cost savings of the energy efficiency, or do you think there's a certain part of it being you know, corporate responsibility around climate change and I think it's both of that nature? I think it's both. I mean, I definitely think there is a commercial underpinning to it. Like, if you can spend less on electricity, that's a good thing for you. It's also a good thing for the world. Um, and there's all sorts of tax incentives and reasons why you would want to do that as well. Um, I do think more corporates are trying to take a offensive view of how can they be more energy efficient, right? How can you build buildings cheaper and how can you operate them cheaper? And it's important to note that as the real estate industry has become more institutionalized, so more real estate than ever in American history is owned by big institutional operators than ever before. That's been a process that's, that's been going on for decades. As that's been happening, I think it changes the meaning a little bit of being a real estate company. Because I think real estate companies conceptualize themselves traditionally and historically as buyers and sellers. So you're a great real estate company if you buy and sell well. And operations was important, but not the most important thing. But once you have broader and broader scale, I mean, take Heinz, who's one of our corporate anchor LPs. They are in the business because their portfolio is so large of not just buying and selling well, but operating really well. And when you have the scale across literally hundreds of buildings in so many different markets with so many millions of square feet under management, the importance of being able to save a cent or two per square foot on electricity can add up fast. So that's a big driver, I think, behind it. So outside of energy efficiency, what are some of the other operational elements that some of the companies that you work with that your partners are really trying to solve for that your portfolio are, are working to create you know, new technologies to, to fix? So VTS, I think, is a good example of a company that um, we invested in. Uh, what they're helping these large corporates do is 
understand leasing across an entire portfolio of assets. Um, previously, that was a process that was either run in brokers' heads or notebooks or in Excel, but there was no standardized cloud-based way to get a view of all asset management and all leasing activity inside a portfolio. So what does VTS do? So VTS is effectively leasing and portfolio management for large real estate corporates. And it interfaces between the real estate brokers, the commercial brokers that are leasing space and putting offers in on space, the property operators, the landlords that are receiving those offers, and the financial partners that are actually building the budgets behind those and deciding whether to buy or sell specific assets. And have there you was, seen any sort of change in their business since the you know the merger with Hightower? I mean, really, VTS and Hightower were doing, frankly, very similar things. And I think they were both competing in the same market. So I think that merger made a lot of sense for, for both firms because now they're kind of the only game in town. They are the best in class real estate leasing and asset management software. Um, I think the other benefit that merging gave them is now they have a tremendous amount of data. I mean, as you can imagine, understanding in real time, leasing data, like what's happening on the ground in specific markets, which is happening in that interplay between landlords and brokers, that's really, really valuable data. And so I think building that data asset becomes really important to them. So it's interesting you mentioned that because I know data is a is a term that's gotten buzzword status of of if you can collect data, you have a huge business. But very few people truly know how to embrace the collection of data and how to use that. So how are ways that you know Hightower, VTS, and others are, are leveraging that data? And, and to kind of to what end are they going to use that data to improve the real estate business? So right now, I think we haven't seen a lot of companies that have had a big impact on the real estate industry through data, through purely data. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. I think one it's really hard to build a business where what you're selling is data insights. That's yep. a very, very hard business to build. Unless I've tried and failed several times. Unless you're Bloomberg, right? Bloomberg did it and did it really well. But generally speaking, it's quite hard. In real estate, it's especially hard because actually most of the data around a building is totally unstructured and doesn't really live in any single repository. So this is basic information, like how many leases came in on a particular space or how many square footed, how many square feet do you actually have in a building? Or how are people using your building? Like how many elevators are running at any given time? How many people are in your building? Um, that's data that literally doesn't even exist in a single place. So I think the first thing that's missing is no one has put everything in centralized repositories. The second thing is no one's really normalized the data. So right now it's all unstructured and unstructured data is basically useless. And then I think we're kind of two or three derivatives away from being able to add value from it, which is then after normalizing the data, you need to build a clear insight and then make that insight very actionable for a landlord. And that has heretofore really not happened, but we're hopeful that with this evolution of innovation that it will. So what I'm hearing, just to kind of play something back, is that if anyone out there is listening, realizes how to take the data that's being created and productize it in some way, Brendan is looking to invest in you. Yeah, I think that's right. I think we're, we just, there's a lot of steps that need to happen before we can really start to use data insights actionably. Um, there's, there's so much talk around how data is going to change businesses, but, and, and it should, and I think it will. I just think there's a lot of kind of antecedent steps that have to happen before you can do that. Um, and right now we're just not seeing those, we're not seeing enough of that happening in the market to have conviction that real estate businesses are going to become data businesses in the next few years. I think in 20 years, they very much will be. Um, but we're just not quite sure what that ecosystem looks like now. Right. And then aside from the, the longer sort of 20-year view on data, what are some of the most exciting companies you've sort of met with, invested in, in the past sort of 12 months? So I'd say one, one category of company that we're really excited by are what I would call real estate as a service companies, which is kind of a, a buzzword that we just use internally, which are these businesses that are asset light real estate businesses. Effectively, what they're doing is they're disintermediating 
um, where they're sitting between landlords and tenants, and they're using the space differently. They're, they're somehow reconfiguring or changing the fundamental use case of a particular asset. So a good example we're probably all familiar with is WeWork, right? WeWork leases space from large landlords, changes the configuration of it, uses it much more densely, and they actually capture now this long tail of kind of granular tenants that wouldn't otherwise be able to lease long-term from, from say, a WeWork. Now, increasingly, they're also trying to go into the corporate sphere as well, but they've fundamentally changed what it means to be a real estate company because they effectively, until they bought the Lord & Taylor building with Roan Capital, they don't own any real estate, yet effectively they're collecting rent as if they're a real estate company. So that's one paradigm I think that, that interests us. And we've looked at a lot of businesses that fall into that category, in particular in the office space. There's two others that are just like it that I think are good examples of these real estate as a service companies. One is a company called Beta. Uh, and Beta, what they do is they lease space. Um, for example, they're leasing space in, a, in Mace Rich malls today. Mace Rich is one of our corporate anchor LPs. Beta leases space from them. And then what Beta does is they go to smaller tenants or smaller makers of consumer products that couldn't otherwise lease a store. And they lease them like a two foot by two foot selling space. And they give them everything they need to market it. They give them a tablet where you can watch videos and you can learn about the product. You can buy the product right in the store. They don't charge a retail margin. So it's kind of like, depending on how you look at it, it's like a mini mall or it's like a mini department store where they've kind of rendered much more flexible the process of going into brick and mortar real estate. And all these makers increasingly want to go into brick and mortar real estate because as we all know, like with any product, if a consumer can touch a product and use a product and build into intimacy with it, it's really important and it drives higher conversions. It almost it almost sounds like an app store for physical products. Yeah, it's like brick and mortar real estate on demand. I wonder if there's an irony there in that the the reason why Beta is able to take those spaces is because they're vacant and some of the larger retail shops don't necessarily need the space anymore in the age of Amazon, et cetera. And according to the irony comes from companies that are kind of up and coming then could take on that space and, you know, smaller profile to try to become the future retailer that could occupy the entire space. I think that's exactly right. I think a lot of new brands, whether they're a consumer electronics brand or even an apparel brand, they actually want to open stores. Um, they know there's a limit to how fast you can grow online. Um, and online is right now becoming Amazon's game. And so if you want to articulate a brand identity and build a relationship with customers and understand your customers and like really merchandise your brand the right way, like understand what kind of products you should be building, you almost have to have a physical store. That's why Bonobos and Warby Parker and Casper, they're all opening stores right now, which is ironic, right? Because these are brands that were native digital, digitally brands, native, yeah. right? They, they were, were born online and now they're opening lots and lots of stores. But what Beta is doing is they've miniaturized that process. So, you know, Bonobos and Warby Parker are opening full stores. They're taking down thousands of square feet. What Beta is doing is going to a much smaller cohort of companies that couldn't lease that space and giving them total control over the distribution. They also do some really cool stuff where inside the stores, they have cameras and a maker can understand how many people walked by their product, how many people touched it, how long did they play with it for, how many of them converted into customers. That's really valuable data. But couldn't you bring that same technology to any retail space or e-commerce space? You could. I'm not sure it's being done. So I think if you're a maker, let's say, of a new fitness gadget, right? And you want to go sell that through Best Buy or you want to sell it through Amazon. I don't think you get any of that data. I think you basically put a bunch of product in one end and then sales come out the other end, but you don't know anything. You don't know who you're competing with for products. You don't know how, what consumers like about it or don't like about it. Yeah, the, it, only, it the only one that benefits is Amazon. Exactly. It's, a, it's just effectively the folks that are taking your product wholesale and selling it retail. But this lets you build a direct channel with with customers. And it's also, it's consistent with what a lot of brands have come to expect online. So many brands now know their marketing funnel and conversion funnel perfectly. They know how much they have to spend on Google AdWords to drive this much traffic, this many site visitors to ultimately drive sales. And they know a lot of data about those people and they can put cookies on their browsers and understand their demographic information. When you go into Amazon or you go into Best Buy, 
you don't get any of that, right? That's all gone. But with a concept like beta, you can actually get to that same kind of analytical rigor around understanding your customer and what they want and how they're going to convert and become ideally long-term customers of your product. Right. Now, here, here's a bit of an out-of-the-box sort of question. When you look at a company like Amazon, you see how mall operators are just the idea of a mall concept is changing. Do you think it's ever possible for Amazon to eventually just go out and purchase one of these mall operators purely for the space? It's an interesting question. Um, Amazon is such a confusing company because um, they're so big, and yet I think they almost don't know their business model yet. Um, they effectively are either like the largest consumer commercial platform or the world's largest charity, right? Because they electively choose not to make money. It's kind of a weird dynamic. So everyone's kind of guessing, I think, at what they're trying to do, what, what the end state, what the end goal for this company is. I think their recent acquisition of Whole Foods is a kind of glimmer of insight into what they may be thinking. Because if you look at e-commerce's growth, even by the most aggressive standard, by the most aggressive estimates of e-commerce growth over the next couple decades, it's still not even going to be 50% of U.S. retail. Today, still 90% of U.S. retail happens offline. So what might be happening at Amazon is that growth just isn't fast enough for Jeff Bezos. And so he wants to control more channels of distribution. And frankly, malls are a great channel to do so because they're they're like town squares today. Many people are going to them. You're curating stores. You're curating brands. Um, they are becoming more lifestyle-driven and experiential. But still, people are going there to buy stuff. And I think he the, wants that. We hear all the time about showrooming is killing retail and the idea that someone walks into Best Buy just to touch and feel the new phone they want to get but then they go out and buy it on Amazon. So are you suggesting actually that that may not be happening as much as the media would suggest it is? Or is it really only happening to some of the anchor tenants of those malls and perhaps creating an opportunity to split that space up with a company like Beta and, and use it for a variety of smaller up-and-coming companies? Well, I think it's, it's definitely happening. I think the question is, who is it happening to and why? Um, and I think a store like a Best Buy... Um, is a good example. There's no, I mean, there's there's Best Buy's brand, but it's really just a bunch of brands inside Best Buy. And so if that's the case, you're really just competing on cost. So a lot of people go into a Best Buy, they'll look at a product, they'll like the product, and they'll go on Amazon and buy it. When you go into, for example, a Nike store, it's very different, right? There's an experience to that, or a Disney store. There's an experience to that, right? You're You're becoming you know, engrossed in this brand and like everything it means to you and the products are being offered to you in new and creative ways. And it's not just about buying, it's about building a, a connection with that brand. And so I think what's happening in retail is it's changing, like more brands that, brands that care about their customers and care about building an identity are looking to retail as the solution to do that. Because if you go on Amazon, for example, and you try to discover Nike as a brand, like check it out, there's nothing, right? There's a bunch of products. So you're just looking at a bunch of products and probably you're looking at a bunch of Reebok products being advertised right next to it. So Amazon is not a place brands go to thrive. Amazon is a place brands go to sell at the diminution of their brand value and their brand equity. Stores, I think, are a place where brands can go to thrive. And they see that. And I think that's brands of all shapes and sizes, from the smaller brands that are going to beta to the brands that are opening up, you know, 2,000, 3,000 square foot stores, to eventually you might have like full on immersion experiences in brands. So I think what's changing is, you know, the meaning of retail is changing. And I think some of these brands also see that the line between online and offline is changing as well. So a lot of these omnichannel brands are seeing that. When they open a store, if they actually look at their web traffic and their web conversion, it goes up in a five-mile radius around that store. So people are window shopping. They're going into the store, they're checking out products, and they're not buying them in the store. But they are buying them online. And so if you only attribute sales 
that happened in the store to the real estate, you're dramatically understating the impact of that store. And I think that's what's, what's making offline and online confusing. I think Amazon actually gets this. And I think part of their move into Whole Foods is a recognition of this, that the brand needs to be ubiquitous. It needs to be hitting consumers in all different ways through truly product offerings and kind of price-driven you know, selection, but also around building a brand identity where there's a place that brands can champion themselves and can articulate who they are and why they're different to their customer base. Yeah, this is. I mean, this is a lot of great wisdom and, and insights you've you've shared with us here. And uh, and next up, uh, you'll hear what Brendan thinks about something he knows even more about, which is Brendan himself. So we'll be right back with personal questions with Brendan Wallace. Check out Sennheiser's latest Bluetooth in-ear headphones, the HD1 Free. Premium materials and flawless craftsmanship combined with stunning Sennheiser sound all in one small and wireless package. And we're not kidding, this makes a great gift. Learn more at Sennheiser.com. And our listeners can get a 25% discount with the code MouthMediaSen at checkout. That's MouthMedia, S-E-N-N. Uh, so, Brendan, we're, we're going to ask you a little bit more about you, Brendan. And my first question I have for you is, you know, for, for those that don't know, you're originally from the Northeast, went to Stanford, and there's this perpetual sort of East Coast versus West Coast sort of vibe and difference when it comes to you know, venture capital investing. You know, how do you feel about that sort of East Coast versus West I Coast this is divide? about Biggie versus Tupac. Okay, sorry, wrong, wrong question. Um, it's a good question. You know, technology and innovation has been concentrated in California and specifically in Silicon Valley for a long time. Um, I think that's changing, though, quite a bit. Um, it's changing in California. So we see a lot of amazing companies now being started in Southern California. And I think it's also changing, you know, on a bi-coastal basis. Like now you're seeing amazing companies also being built in New York. And I think the reason for that is that as technology is no longer like a sector unto itself, where you have real estate and energy and transportation and then technology, whereas technology is kind of now like the bedrock of many of these industries and it's becoming all industries, the nerve centers of those industries, and I would argue that New York is the nerve center of the real estate industry, are actually becoming the hubs of innovation for the subsector of real estate tech. So we actually spend ourselves spending a lot of time here in New York. Um, and you're currently based out of Los Angeles. We're currently based out of Los Angeles. I, I think it's very possible that in the next year we open a New York office because there's so many large real estate companies that we want to meet with and we want to engage with that are based here. And there's actually a lot of startups that are based here and there's a huge talent ecosystem here. So it's hard. You just you have, frankly, more geography, I think, to cover than ever before. Um, and I think venture funds are also, you know, they're they're becoming aware of this too, and they're opening offices all over the country. So you've had, by all accounts, a pretty successful career so far. But I want to talk about the exact opposite, right? What are some of the what is the biggest mistake of your career or professional life that uh, you want to share with us to make us all feel a little bit better about ourselves? Um, I probably could have stayed in the real estate industry in two thousand seven. I think some of the people that did really well in the real estate industry, um, stayed in the business in, you know, the, throughout the crisis. Um, it, it always feels like whenever everyone is rushing for the exits, that's kind of the best time to rush in. Um, and some of the greatest real estate trades that have happened in the last decade happened because of great buys during the great recession. So I think, you know, making the easy transition into technology, I might have missed a lot of opportunity in the real estate industry. And I think it's probably also an instructive lesson for what happens in the future. 
this boom cycle we're in in tech won't last. There will be a correction at some point, and how you behave in that correction might make all the difference. And the boom cycle we're in in the real estate industry also probably won't last. Um, and so I think both of those things will just create opportunity. So it's always good to learn from your experiences, but um, it's been easy, I think, to do well in the market that we're in right now. But the real test of a venture fund or a real estate company is going to be what you do and how you behave and how you fare during what are likely imminent retractions that are going to happen across many different industries. That's a very, very well said. And as far as, you know, you seem to have a very busy, productive work life. It sounds like you're you know, scheduled, you know, meeting to meeting to meeting and meeting with all these great companies. But what do you do for fun when you're, when you're not meeting with investors or strategic LPs? It's a good question. What, what do I do for fun? Um, come on podcasts. I come on podcasts. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I'd say all the time. It is it is hard to stay sane. Um, frankly, we bit off a little more than we could chew at at Fifth Wall. I think we are effectively a you know advisory business for large corporates, and we're a venture fund. So we have a bunch of stakeholders. We have these large corporates as stakeholders and um, early stage tech companies, and so your time belongs to other people. So you know, in my free time, I, I work out. I like to run. A lot. I'm. I train a lot. Um, I try to sleep where I can. Um, I, recently, I haven't been getting a tremendous amount of sleep. Um, as I mentioned, just got off the red eye. Um, it's not always the best place to to catch good sleep. Exactly. Um, but I managed to get some sleep. Um, yeah. I, to be honest, I think it is one of the hard things about running a new venture fund is trying to find balance in your life. Because so much of your job is you're paid to make great judgments. Um, and when you're too busy, you don't have the mind space to exercise judgment well. Um, and there's always this friction because you're, you want to support your portfolio companies and you want to support your anchors. But if you took every meeting and did every task, there wouldn't be enough mind space to make any judgment, let alone a good judgment. And so I think the hard thing to balance is, you know, how do you build, how do you maintain the impression and, and the reality of being like a great partner to your corporates and a great partner to your portfolio companies while also creating the space to identify the next big thing, the new big opportunity. And I, I think we're still learning, right? We're a really young company. Um, one thing that I think has been helpful is when we started Fifth Wall, I thought about I thought about a lot of how venture funds spend their time. And venture funds spend their time, partners at funds, chasing deals a lot. That is a huge portion of where their time goes, trying to get into the next great company. And that consumes a lot of their day, right? Going to conferences, going to meetings. It's just a it's a it's a all day, every day type task. The way we built Fifth Wall kind of changes that model because we don't really chase deals. We actually do the opposite. We invest a huge amount of time in our corporates so that we can really influence the outcomes for early stage companies. And as a result, a lot of companies come to us, right? So we have a lot of inbound from companies, which then creates its own problems, right? We have to be responsive to those companies and make sure that you know we're not MIA. Um, but it, it did free up a lot of time for us. So like we philosophically approach venture differently where we're not on the ground trying to get into the next best deal and trying to hunt things down at conferences. We're spending that time investing in our corporates and investing in our portfolio companies under the belief that that will bring the next great companies to us. Um, and we're still figuring that out as well. So I wanna switch gears for a second. Time, time travel back to your earliest real estate memory. So young Brendan in your first home, what was your favorite room in your house? And tell us a little bit about it. Uh, I like playing pool a lot. I like the pool room. Um, so we had like a pool table downstairs in our basement. And I feel like I spent a lot of time playing pool down there. 
Um, what else? Did we totally skip over like a college pool hustler stage of your No, career? no, I never got that good. I can't um, picture Princeton being a breeding ground for pool, <laughs> yeah. hustler, pool hustlers. You don't um, know the Princeton I know. I used to spend a lot of time, I, my parents didn't like this, but I used to spend a lot of time on the roof. Um, I used to sneak up to the roof. How do you get to bit. the roof? Hopefully exactly. the one-story house. Through an, through an outside window. Um, this is nice. Um, what else did I like? Yeah, I probably ate a lot, spent a lot of time in the kitchen. Um, I think those are my favorite rooms. <laughs> Word to come about the roof. but Yeah, I, I've never spent time on a roof, so I don't know. I don't. I don't think I have the physical dexterity to get to my roof. <laughs> I, have, I have one last uh, question. This is not really so much as personal. It's just a sort of really oddball question. I was in a taxi the other day, which was even strange being a taxi versus an Uber. And the taxi driver asks, "You know, yo, you're in real estate. What? Uh, when are you going to start selling properties on Mars?" And obviously, Elon Musk is building rockets to eventually go to Mars one day. Maybe colonize Mars one day. When do you think? it would be possible. How many years out do you think that could be possible for us to, someone to live on Mars? Um, well, maybe there's, I feel like there's two questions there. When, when are going to, when are, when is it going to be possible to buy property outside earth? <laughs> um, and then when are we going to be able to colonize Mars? I have no basis to answer the second. I have no idea. Um, I mean, by my basis for answering that would be like the movie Total Recall or something. So it wouldn't be super helpful. Um, I think on the first one, I bet people start looking at doing this soon. Um, I think if you have a multi-decade, multi-generational time horizon, in addition to colonization, there's probably resources. I'm sure that... there are people already selling plots of land on Mars, whether or not they have any I mean, I'm, right. Yeah, I'm sure we can go on the internet right and now. I'm and I'm sure buy Bezos some land can on... sell another few billion of shares. Exactly. To, but I'm to sure there's resources that people are going to want access to. And I could imagine a speculative market, you know, emerging there. And so it poses interesting questions around like, how do you regulate that? Who owns it? Um, well, apparently, we're just uh, being told by our producer that uh, there's a buymars.com, so maybe... Yeah, uh, be careful about officially in- yeah. endorsing that on the, bo- yeah, we <laughs> on the do. podcast. We do not endorse it, but apparently <laughs> someone's working on it. Um, sorry, I can't be much help on the, yeah, on the no Mars worries. question. I figure I always like to sort of leave it on a high note and you know push, push our <laughs> minds out a little bit. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for, for being with us. We, we always ask our guests to leave us with a sort of final thought, um, whether it looks back over the conversation or just your view on the industry. But uh, what would you like to share with, uh, with our listeners? Um, I'd say maybe this is a message more for entrepreneurs. Um, but, you know, we, we see, obviously, entrepreneurs every day. We meet with amazing entrepreneurs. And... One of the things I think entrepreneurs don't do enough of is trying to get in front of the ultimate buyers of their customers, the buyers of their product, the customers of their product, much earlier on in the process of building it. There's too much kind of a priori building. So building something without talking to the person that's actually parting with money for the service or the solution that you're providing. And one of the things that I think we're trying to figure out how to do better at Fifth Wall is actually act as that connective tissue so that a really young company with a great idea and a great team that has a, has a sense of what they want to build but doesn't know concretely actually what it looks like or specifically how it works. They don't know the granular details yet. How do you open an exchange between a large corporate that's going to use that and that early stage company at a stage when it can be most impactful, where the clay is still wet. And I would encourage young entrepreneurs to do that exercise. Try as hard as you can. Hopefully Fifth Wall can help out in some cases, but irrespective of Fifth Wall, it's just so important because building the wrong thing too early is you know, a death sentence. Um, and it's very hard to really know use cases until you've intimately connected with these large corporates. That's, uh, that's fantastic. Uh, and if uh, an entrepreneur wanted to connect with uh, you and your team at Fifth Wall, how can, how can people reach out? So you could email me. It's probably the best way to do it. I'm just Brendan, B-R-E-N-D-A-N, at Fifth Wall, just 
F-I-F-T-H-W-A-L-L dot V-C. So it's probably the best way. Um, and if you're going to reach out with a business plan, obviously, you know, send, send the business plan and ideally let us know how and where you think we can be helpful and impactful to your company vis-a-vis our corporate partners. Thank you to Brennan Wallace of Fifth Wall for joining today. And thank you for investing your time with us as well. Uh, we, we truly appreciate it. Um, and that's it for today's conversation. So for Scott Pollack. Hello. And I'm Tom Kutzman. Uh, We'll see you next time. And until then, enjoy your day. You've been listening to Real Estate Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for this show or to become a sponsor, email us at realestatebizshow at mouthmedianetwork.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Real Estate Biz Show. That's Real Estate B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, realestateisyourbusiness.com. Produced by Mouth Media Network and brought to you by Preview. Copyright 2017. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thanks for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.